I'm so excited about the message today, part three in our series, The Pursuit of Happiness. My dear friend, uh, Dr. Bill Hackett spoke for me last weekend, and he did a wonderful, wonderful job. He's, uh, he and Judy are always in the 930 service, and I've heard from so many of you how much you appreciated that message, and I appreciate uh, having a guy like Dr. Hackett and so many others that, you know, are able to step in and keep things moving, and he did a brilliant job uh, doing that, and it gave me an opportunity to spend some time with some people I really wanted to spend some time with. Of course, I wanted to see my son and, and daughter-in-law, but I really, really, really wanted to see my grandbabies. And I had a chance to spend some time with them for about a week. It was so great. They actually came here. And let me just say this. If you're living a boring life, uh, I've, got a, I've got an idea for you. Take a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a five-month-old to the Florida Aquarium in Tampa for the day. And your life will no longer be boring. And uh, so it was, it was an amazingly fun time. We did a lot of other things. But I can remember we got back from the trip the next day. I'm just going to quiz Kaylee and Landry. They're four and two. So I go to Landry first. And I said, Landry, I said, baby, she's two now. I said, how did you like, how did you like the aquarium yesterday? What did you really enjoy? And I love the way she talks. She's got this wonderfully unique little voice. And she looked at me and she said, she said and she's, she's the one that is fun on wheels. She just loves. And she's like, Papa, I love the turtles and the little turtles. And I'm like, well, that's great, baby. And then I go over here to Kinley, and Kinley, she's four, and, and she is logic, and she is the thinker. And I said, what about you, Kinley? Did you like the aquarium? And she's like, yes, and smiling. And I said, what do you like about it? And she just looked at me, and she said, well, I was thinking that they would have dolphins. So it's like, you know, thank you for taking me, but, you know, what's up with no dolphins? So, and then like Brody, five months, how do you like it? Brody, you have fun? And he's just, <laughs> he's just having a great time no matter where he's at. So I'm glad to be with you today and uh, back with you. And I'm so glad that you're here this morning. And I love this current series that we're in because I want you to be a happy, joy-filled kind of person. I'm like that myself. I'm, I'm thankful for that. But I don't want you, that just for my life. I want it for every one of you. I want you to be a happy. I want you to be a joy-filled person. Some of you are saying, I, I really want that too. But I just, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that I can fundamentally understand how that can become a reality for my life. And that's the reason why we're engaged in this series together. Now, did you know, and perhaps you didn't, that's why I wanted to mention it to you, that when you are being a joyful person, that when you are, as we've been talking about uh, last week and the week before out of Philippians about this whole idea of rejoicing, that you are actually, when you're doing those things, being joyful or rejoicing, that you're actually obeying God. And you say, well, how can that be? Because joy is a command that is mentioned numerous times throughout the Bible. It's found again where God is saying, I want you to be joyful. I want you to be happy. That's my plan. And some of you are feeling like, well, you know, if that's God's plan for my life, then why haven't I realized that yet? Why is that not a reality for my life? And again, it's why we're talking about this. But again and again, you find it in the Bible. I'll take you to a couple of places, uh, two in the book that we're looking at, one in another letter that Paul wrote. But look at this out of chapter three. This is Philippians chapter three and verse one. And he says, finally, my brothers, and here's that word, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. I want you to be a joyful person. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Very next chapter, again, Philippians is the joy-filled book. Look at this next verse, Philippians 4, verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord. How often? 
always. Just rejoice in the Lord all of the time. And he's like, if you didn't get it the first time I'm saying it, I'll say it again. Rejoice. I don't want you to forget it, Paul is saying. I want you to be a joy-filled, happy kind of person. Now, this is not Philippians. This is from another letter. Paul wrote uh, other letters, in fact, to this particular group of people, which were some believers living in a place called Thessalonica. It's a mouthful, isn't it? He wrote to them this. He said, I always want you to be joyful. Always be joyful. And you're like, well, you know, I want that for my life too. So here's a relevant question that I want to raise on the front end of this talk with you. What is it about joy? What is it about joy that makes it so absolutely critical that God himself would mandate that we express it and that we experience it? Let me say that again. What is it about joy? What is it about joy that it is so critically important that God himself would mandate that we would experience joy and that we would express it in our lives? We need to talk about that. And can I just say that one, uh, one of the great reasons why you, you and I can be a joy-filled person is when we just stop and for a few moments, which we don't often do, and start thinking about all that God has done for us. Let me, let me mention one. Think about this. Think about this reality. God has forgiven you, and me too, but God has forgiven you of all of your sins. I mean, when you've confessed and repented, that God is, how many of you know that ought to make you a happy person? I mean, God has forgiven you of all of your sins. When God forgives us of our sins, that ought to make us happy. When we're adopted into God's family, God says, here's what I want to do. I love you so much. I created you to love you. And I've got joy planned for your life. And part of you becoming a joyful person is I'm going to adopt you into my family. I've got a sister, always been unable to have children. I've got a cousin, unable to have children. They've adopted children. And the joy that is brought to them, as it would to God, to uh, adopt us into his family. It has brought to them joy. It has brought the kids that they've adopted joy. And it ought to bring, bring us joy. Uh, in addition to that, it says like this, you know, I've not only forgiven you of your sins, I have not only adopted you into my family. This ought to be something that would make us joyful. When God says, here's what I'm going to do, I'm going to provide you with a reserved seat in heaven. To think that if you're a follower of Jesus, that there is a place in heaven that has your name on it, that one day when you die, and all of us will, that you're not going to just float around out in space somewhere, that you're going to thank God, miss hell, that you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven. That ought to make us joyful. And while we're in this life, God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to leave you on your own. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to abandon you. It's not like there's going to be this huge gap between you and me until you get to heaven. God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my whole Holy Spirit, and I'm going to place him inside of you. So here's what's going to happen. Because the Holy Spirit, my Holy Spirit, God is saying is inside of you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to equip you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to convict you. I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to lead you. And I'm going to do all of these things. Plus, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my one and only best-selling book, and I'm going to put it into your hands. And I'm going to guide your life. Now, friends, when we start thinking about that, that ought to make us joyful. But it doesn't even in there. Here's another reason. When we are joyful, it enhances the lives of the people around us. Would you, could you dispute the effect that attitude has upon the people that you and I are around? 
I mean, you think about maybe an environment where you were. Somebody comes in with a bad attitude. How many of you know it can change the whole complexion of what's going on in the workplace? Somebody come in with a positive attitude. It can just encourage and build up the people around them. And, and to think that, you know, my attitude is not going to affect anybody if, uh, except for me. That's illogical. That's not even reality. Our attitude, what we possess, and the attitude that we have will either enhance the people around us or it will just, you know, it will be a negative. And that happens at work, at school, it happens in our own homes. And sometimes, you know, the reality is uh, we, we just don't even realize we don't have self-awareness. Sometimes this may be true of you. You may actually have a bad attitude, but you don't think your attitude is all that bad. In fact, you may think that your attitude is quite good, but everybody else around you knows that your attitude stinks. And you're like, I got a great attitude. And they're like you, you know, and a lot of people won't even speak up and tell you. I, I love the story about the lady. You know, they were close friends, so they could speak, uh, you know, um, transparently with one another. And so this lady came in. She's just, I mean, it's just bad morning. And just her, and her friend just fi finally, after about 15 or 20 minutes of it, she just sort of stops her because this attitude was not, you know, normal for her friends. So she just finally looks at her and she says, stop, 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 stop. I'm your friend and I love you. And I've just got to ask you a question. Did you wake up grumpy this morning? And she had no self-awareness. She said, no, I didn't. I let him sleep in. I let him sleep in today. So a lot of times we're grumpy and we don't even realize we're grumpy and we think other people are. And, and so, you know, our attitude. And so, therefore, if you're a happy person, guess what? It's going to happen. You take that kind of attitude or joyful attitude into a place, it's going to enhance the people around you. Let me give you not yet another reason why joy is such a great thing. There's actually been a lot of research out on this one, and it is this. Joyful people are much more financially generous and perform acts of compassion, do so much more than less joyful people do. I mean, they just do. They're, they're generous. They're they're activistic in terms of compassion. And if all these things that I've already mentioned were not enough, joyful people develop more friendships than less joyful people do. And that only makes sense. Joyful people are more resilient when faced with challenges. Joyful people even thrive better when they're ill than less joyful people do. It's so true. And what Nehemiah said hundreds and hundreds of years ago is so true. You see it right up here on the screen, Nehemiah 8.10. This is what he said. He said, you know what your strength is? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen. You want to know what's going to make you strong? It's, it's God's joy. I love what Jesus said. I want to take my joy, and I want to put my joy into you, and I want your joy to be complete. That's not even Paul. That's Jesus himself saying that. And the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. See, I can confidently say to every one of you, every one of you, nobody's left out of this, that God wants you to be a joyful person. And there's numerous great things that can happen when you are a joyful person that will never happen if you don't have joy. So in the remainder of our time, and again, I'm really, really excited about this. In the remainder of our time, I want to share with you a secret. I want to share you a secret. In fact, this secret, you can actually tell other people. And it's a secret that happy people know. Now, in order to accomplish this, I need to take you back to the New Testament book of Philippians. And there are some verses that I want you to see. So let's begin. They're going to put it up on the screen. This is verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul here is writing to believers, to the church at Philippi. Look at these words with me. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, 
any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make, here it is, my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And then he says this, it's so important, do nothing. You want to be a joyful person? Paul's saying, I'm going to tell you how to do that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, keep that in mind now, we're going to be talking about that, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. And that's not easy, and that's why we need to talk about it. Each of you, Paul says, should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Now, here's what I want to do. And I'm going to ask you to give me some of your best thinking, some of your best mental horsepower this morning, because before we ever get to some of the amazing realities concerning Jesus, it will help us if we understand the culture of Philippi. So I'm going to take you back for just a few moments because you're going to understand this passage so much better if I can walk you back to the context that existed that Paul is writing into. Philippi, where these verses that we've looked at and we'll look at some others in a moment come from, Philippi was actually a Roman colony. And in the culture of Philippi, um, being a Roman colony, uh, what we, and some of you maybe didn't study Philippi, for example, when you were in school, but you probably studied Rome. And what you may or may not remember about Rome is that Rome was the most status-oriented culture in the ancient world. People in Rome cared a lot about status. So if you lived in Rome at these times, as obviously these followers of Jesus did, then you were surrounded by people who had very, very strong feelings about status and social recognition. It was a really big deal in Rome. Status really mattered a lot. You know, climbing the ladder really mattered a lot. How you stood in society, what group you belonged to, all these things mattered a lot. And Paul is writing to Christ followers living in this pervasive uh, sort of attitude that says, you know what? You just got to keep moving. You just got to keep climbing. You just got to, you know, serve yourself, look out for yourself. In fact, the very attitude that Paul is trying to encourage them to guard themselves from was the attitude that says you've got to advance yourself. You've got to promote yourself. You've got to serve yourself. And Paul contrastingly is saying, you know what? If you do that, if you follow the culture, if you keep listening to all of the voices that you're surrounded by in Rome, if you keep listening to that, then here's what it's going to do. It's going to hurt your own life. It's going to damage your relationships. It'll damage the church because it is not the way of God. A number of years ago, I picked up a book uh, Timothy Keller is a great writer, great thinker. And in a book that he's written called The Reason for God, he says this, nothing makes, makes us more miserable than self-absorption. The endless, unsmiling concentration of our needs, our wants, our treatment, our ego, and our record. Now, again, I want to take you into a little bit deeper now into life in Philippi because it's going to cause these passages to make much more sense. In Philippi, there were clear distinctions that separated people from one another. Society at that time was basically, categorically speaking, divided into two groups. There were the elites and there were, we'll just say the non-elites, categorically speaking. Now, uh, to be a little bit more specific on this, to just show you some numbers. If Rome and surrounding like colonies like Philippi had this, this separation of elites and non-elites, I'll give you percentage-wise what that looked like. 98%, 98% fell in the category of non-elites, 
meaning that only 2% of those who were connected to the Roman Empire lived in any kind of elite status whatsoever. So 2% only fell into the ranker class of elites. So that does right away, right out of the gate, provides us with some insight into, the va- into, into how the vast majority of people live. Now, let's talk about that a little bit deeper. At the very bottom, I want, I want you to see sort of these layers. At the very bottom of the 98%, the non-elites, at the very bottom were slaves. And they had a horrible, horrible life. The slaves had no rights. They, they had no status. They had no control over their own life. They had no honor. In, in fact, if you were a slave in Rome, basically you were not even treated like a human being. You were treated like a piece of property. And you had no rights. And in that 98% of non-elites, you were at the very, very bottom of that grouping. Just above slaves were those who were referred to. Not that much higher, but higher, a little bit higher status, recognition, were those who were referred to. Here's the term, freedmen. Freedmen. And you didn't have a lot of rights, but you had more rights than slaves did. And if given a choice, you could be a slave or a freedman. Well, of course, you would take the route of the freedman. You'd much rather be in that category, which was a little bit above the category of the slaves. Now, just above that, but still a part of the non-elites were citizens of the Roman Empire. And citizens in the Roman Empire, they did have some rights and they did have some privileges. In fact, there were certain things that could and could not happen if you were a Roman citizen. I don't know if you remember this, and I don't want to chase it this morning for time's sake, but there was this occasion when Paul was actually flawed. He was beaten unmercifully, and, and then it was found out that he was actually a citizen of Rome. And so he's being questioned now. This is post-beating after he is being beaten. And the person that is responsible says, hey, there's some word that you're a citizen of Rome. And he says to Paul, well, I too am a citizen and I paid a lot of money. This is what he said. He had resources. He said, I paid a lot of money for my citizenship. And then this is where this guy's head began to spin. Paul said, I didn't spend any money on buying my citizenship. I'm born a citizen of Rome. And the guy's like, oh man, now we've got really big problems. You know why? Because as a citizen of Rome, Paul had privileges. He had rights, and he could not, he could not be beaten. He could not be flawed. So you had slaves, then you had freedmen, and then still a part of the non-elites, you had Roman citizens. But then we get up to the next level. Then there's this very small group, now in the elite category, that were members of the Roman Senate. Again, only 2%. Only 2%. Then at the very top of the 2%, there was an emperor. Caesar. And this is the ladder that everybody was trying to climb. If you were a slave, you wanted, you wanted to get to the category of the freedmen. If you were a freedman, you'd love one way or the other to become a citizen of Rome. If you were a citizen of Rome, then you only dreamed about the reality that one day you could be a part of the Roman Senate. And who knows? Oh man, to imagine that you could be an emperor one day. But sadly speaking, you know what? Most people never moved up. They wanted, they longed. And again, this is the culture that Paul is speaking into because these believers that he's writing to are surrounded by this, that are people are saying, you know what? In order to move up, in order to climb the ladder, the only way it's going to happen because if I don't care for me, nobody's going to care for me. So I'm going to advance myself. I'm going to promote myself. I'm going to serve myself. I'm going to look in the mirror and say, me, 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 me. It's all about me. And Paul is saying, you know what? You do that, you're going to make a huge mistake. You know what is actually interesting uh, to me about this is that what is interesting is you could actually tell what category a person was connected to on the basis of the clothes that they wore. It's unique, isn't it? 
For example, now I'll give you just real briefly here because, again, I want you to understand the context. If you were a slave, you really didn't wear anything special. There was nothing that identified you as a slave. But if you happened to be a freedman, which wasn't much above a slave, but it was certainly better than being in that category, then you wore a special cap. If you were a freedman, you wore a special cap. You could do that. That was a privilege you had. It was actually called a freedman's cap, a freedman's cap. Now, if you were a citizen... If you were a citizen, then you could wear something really special at this time. Again, we're talking Rome, the Roman Empire. If you were a citizen, you could actually wear a toga. How many of you know what a toga is? Or you? I started to wear one just for illustration purposes. How many of you are glad I didn't? So not really. I'd, I'd never do that. But you could wear a toga. Now, if you were a senator, think about this. If you were a senator, you could actually, you wore a toga, but your toga was distinct from others that just the citizens had, the common citizens, because your toga had a purple stripe on it, and you could actually wear a gold ring. And then if you were Caesar, then if you happened to be Caesar, you could actually wear whatever you wanted to, which in the case of the emperor, he would wear, generally speaking, what everybody else really wanted to wear, which they couldn't wear, which was Georgia Bulldog gear. You know, hats and jerseys and shirts. Okay, maybe, maybe I just made that part up. Maybe, all right, set that aside. That part was not accurate, but the rest of it was. Life in Philippi also included being familiar with what a crucifixion was all about. And I shared with you not too long ago who could and could not experience such a gruesome crucifixion and how that it was a form of capital punishment. I shared this with you uh, on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, uh, when we talked about Jesus' crucifixion and that the purpose of a crucifixion was not just to kill someone, but to so publicly humiliate them. If you were here that Sunday, you will remember that the person being crucified would be paraded through the most crowded streets of that city, and there would be a Roman soldier that would be out in front of the person being crucified, walking with a sign that listed on it the crimes that the slave, the criminal, had been had committed. And it was all about not just capital punishment, it was all about utter humiliation. It was a form of capital punishment usually reserved for slaves. In fact, the phrase commonly used for it was this. The crucifixion was often called the slave's punishment. The slave's punishment. I want you to keep that in mind. One more thing concerning life in Philippi before we transition into some incredible action that Jesus takes. And that is, if a person in Rome ever lost their elite status it was considered a great tragedy. Nobody ever wanted to do that. Nobody ever wanted to lose the status. I mean, I shared with you a moment ago, you know, 98%, you had, uh, you actually had, uh, you know, slaves, and then there were freedmen. There was actually a, a group higher up that I did not mention, a Squarians, uh, who could uh, actually have the kind of resources to be able to buy horses, but citizens and then Roman citizens. And it was really hard. It was really hard for people to punch through and move up into the Ned's category. But quite often, people would fall from the status that they had. And when that happened, there was a phrase for it, and it is a phrase that all of us are familiar with. It would be said of this person that they were, here it is, that they were humbled. They were humbled. I also want you to keep that in mind. Now, this background really comes into play when you see the extraordinary words that Paul is about to speak 
in regards to Jesus. You're going to see them on the screen. We're picking up now at verse 5. Look at these verses. They're really important. Paul, now you've seen what Philippi is like. Now Paul is talking to believers. He said, here, I know what you're surrounded by, but your attitude, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he tells these believers what it was. Who, speaking of Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And he took upon himself the very nature of a servant, of a slave. Do you remember the lowest category? He took upon himself the very nature of a servant, a slave, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. What did he do? He humbled himself. He didn't wait to be, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even what kind of death? Death on a cross. And, and what is Paul saying to these believers? And it, and it was like so massively important. He is saying this, Jesus intentionally walked a different path than the residents living in Rome. They lived, lived to move up the ladder, but Jesus took the ultimate downgrade. They were saying, you know what? I'm here, but it's all about me, and I've got to promote myself, and I'm going to do it publicly. In fact, any time a person was ever promoted or any time a person was ever advanced, it was made public because it just made it a much bigger deal. So they wanted public recognition and social status, and, and Paul is saying, you see this, you're surrounded by that, and everybody's trying to move up, but I want you to have the attitude of Jesus. And maybe you'd consider, maybe you'd consider the ultimate downgrade. And we don't like to think about this. I mean, we like to think it is about us. It is about me. I've got to promote me. I've got to advance me. I've got to look good. I, 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 want, to be, I want to be found, you know, in the eyes of people to be something. You know what we do? We want to be found in the eyes of people to be better than we know that we actually are. And so we, we feel, and maybe, you know, and I, I don't want to get into, but sometimes we've just got all these insecurities going on in our own life. And the only way for me to feel good about me is to make myself try to look better than somebody else. And if I can't make me look good, at least I can make them look bad. And if I can make them look bad, then maybe it makes me look a little bit better. And Paul is saying, you got to get all this crazy notion, all this crazy thinking out of your mind. Think about Jesus. Jesus took a downgrade. Can I tell you, the most happy person that ever walked this planet was Jesus. And Jesus took the ultimate downgrade. He went from heaven to earth. He went from king to a slave. We don't like to talk about downgrades. I mean, just look at it. And I, I'll just be transparent because maybe that will help you a little bit to come to grips with it in your life. I uh, Still to this day, some of you have heard me talk about this. My stepfather, who's still living... Uh, for many years, worked with a major airline uh, company uh, that's still very much prevalent today. You've probably flown on it quite a lot. And in this company, because I am his son, I still have some flight privileges, which basically means, in a nutshell, if I want to go say, see my grandbabies in Bloomington, Illinois, then what I can do is I can list on a particular flight, and if there's an empty seat, I get on the plane. But if the seat is not empty, well, guess what? That's sort of the, you know, you miss, you, you miss the flight. You wait for something else for the next day. But, you know, it's a great benefit, and, you know, empty seat, you get on the plane. Now, for me, honestly, and it's harder to get this as it was when I was a, a teenager, but years ago, how many of you noticed that when you fly on planes, they're a lot more crowded than they used to be? How many of you have noticed this? A lot more crowded. 
So generally speaking, years ago, when I was a lot younger than I am now, 36, I mean younger than that, okay, young, again, I digress. Uh, when I was way younger, um, I can remember so many times not only being able to get on the flight, but here's, here's a real cool benefit. I, I love it. I'm, I'm admitting If there was a seat in first class, you actually got a first class seat. So I can't tell you the number of times still this day I'm listed on a flight. And number one, I'm just wanting to get on the flight. You know, like if I'm going to Illinois and I want to see my grand, I just, I want to get on the flight. I don't want to have to wait and wait and sit in the airport. I want to get on, on the flight. But honestly speaking, I not only want to get a seat, I want to get a first class seat. And I look at that screen and I count out the number of seats. I, I'm just telling, I'm just being honest. I don't say, I never say, I never look at that screen and say, man, I hope first class fills up so I get to go to the very back seat in the plane. I'm like, man, is it a chance? Am I going to get on first class today? I mean, because we like first class. We don't, we don't like second class. We don't like, we, how many of you know, admit it, we like first class. How many of you remember the days when airlines separated, you know, coach from first class? How many of you flew in the days where they had like the big thick curtain? It like separated all of us from the holy of holies, you know, you, you know how it works. But I love, I'm admitting it. I love a first class seat. And when my name gets called and I walk up and I see that seat and it says like 2A or 3B or 1C, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Jeff is flying first class today because we like first class. When Jesus came into this world, he did not wear a toga. No purple stripe, no gold ring, not even a freedman's cap. In fact, it's amazing the clothes that Jesus wore on the day of his birth, rags, he was wrapped, you remember? It's fresh in swaddling clothing. Nothing very impressive about that. Paul tells us that Jesus humbled himself. Who does such a thing? I don't want to humble myself. Do you? I mean, not by nature. Spiritually, I do. Spiritually, I know it's the best. I, I don't, we all deal with this. We don't want to humble ourselves. We want to look better than everybody else. We want to advance. We want to promote. We want to serve ourselves. Jesus humbled himself. Who does something like that? He willingly became a slave. He said, you know what? I'm going to become a servant. I, I, I'm not looking for elite status. And again, there's, you know, I'm not trying to contract. Jesus, just his whole attitude. He said, I'm not, what I'm going to do, I'm going to the very bottom. And I'm going to become a servant. I'm going to become a slave. Actually, I'm actually going to become obedient to death. Even, listen, even death on a cross. And you know what, friends? A slave's punishment. You heard me mention that again a while ago. A slave's punishment is as low as you could go. So what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I'm, you know what? I'm going to go as low as you possibly can go. And I'm just telling you, friends, this would make absolutely no sense to the average citizen of Philippi. But I've got to tell you, the story is not yet over. It is not. Before you see the next verses, this is so, I mean, this is so amazing to me. See, what does Jesus do? Jesus acts out of obedience. Jesus acts. But in the next part of this narrative that Paul is talking to these believers about, 
Jesus has acted, and how did Jesus act? He humbled himself, and he did all these things, even becoming a servant unto death, death on a cross, a slave's punishment. But I want you to look now at the rest of the story. Jesus acts first. Now God is going to act second. Look at these verses right here. This is amazing to me. Therefore, God exalted him. Jesus said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to humble myself. And God said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to exalt Jesus. And I'm going to exalt Jesus, not to the lowest place, but to the highest place. And I'm going to give him a name that is above every name, including the name of Caesar, that at that name, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is absolutely powerful to me. Jesus acted in the first part. He humbled himself. Not God is going to add. God's going to exalt him to the highest place. Jesus moves to the lowest place of slave's punishment. Now God is going to elevate him to the highest place, which will also be very public. You know, Jesus' crucifixion was very public, wasn't it? Very public. People came. In fact, they not only came to witness. Think about this, friend. This is amazing to me that they not only came to witness, but there were people that stood around that they mocked him and they jeered him. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross and save yourself. You claim to be the son of God. Why don't you call angels to come and help you? And, and it was very public. It was very humiliating. But I'm telling you, there is a time coming when Jesus' exaltation shall also be very public, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is who he claims to be that he is the very son of God. He has been exalted to the highest place. And listen, friends, here's a wonderful thing. Anytime the kingdom of God breaks into the world, some amazing things happen. Every time the kingdom of God breaks into the world, the first end up becoming last and servants actually become the great ones. And the shocking secret, here's what you've been waiting for that happy people know is that the road to joy is not found in advancing yourself or promoting yourself or serving yourself or looking in the mirror and saying, me, 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 me. But it's in loving and serving and valuing and honoring people. Jesus said, you want to do something really radicalized? Start treating better people better than you do yourselves. Happiest people I know The happiest people I know are the most generous people I know. The happiest people I know are are more servant-oriented people I know. You know the most miserable, and I know a lot of miserable people. I didn't say I hang out with them. I just know them. They're all about me, me. I've got to promote myself. I've got to serve. It's all about me. Happiest people I know, it's about other people. Friends, I just encourage you in these last moments that we have together, do not live with the illusion that if you can only have more stuff, nothing wrong with more stuff. I hope God blesses you with a lot of stuff. I really do. I hope God blesses you with a lot of stuff, but I hope that it gives you the wisdom to know that it's not your stuff that is going to make you happy. I can remember I'm able to drive some nice cars now, and I'm very, very grateful for it. I drive some nice cars. been blessed. I haven't always been able. I can remember when I was in college. I can remember having a car that basically, you know, for the most part, it was in pretty good shape. But I will tell you, there was some wire on it that held some pieces in place. And there was a patch of duct tape here or there. And you know what? Looking back, I was as happy driving that car as I do the cars that I drive today. If you think I'll only be happy 
if I can get that job. Can I just, and I know there's some exceptions. Listen, there's some exceptions to the rule. You may have a job that really, really stinks and nobody would want that job. But I'm just trying to say to you, if you've got a job right now and you're thinking I can only be happy if I get that job, you may get that job you think was going to make you happy and you'd be just as miserable as the job you're miserable in right now. If I only could get that address, if I could only get that, if I could only, you know, then that will make me happy. And Jesus said, that is not what is going to make you happy. What's going to make you happy is when you humble yourself. And you say, I'm going to love the way that Jesus loved. And I'm going to serve the way that Jesus served. And I'm going to honor people. Here's an amazing thing that I've been learning. I haven't got there yet. You don't always have to be first. Listen, this is going to mess up some of you and it messes up me. Because I like to be right. But you don't always have to be right. Would you do that? Would you love? Would you serve? Would you value? Would you honor? It's the secret that happy people know. That life is really not all about me. It's about others. Can I just give you a real practical word right here as we get ready to pray. If you're feeling down, and it's okay to admit that you feel down. I feel down from time to time. I have bad days. Some of you have heard me. I've been very honest and transparent with you. In a matter of just six months, my grandbabies who live 2.5 miles from my house moved to Illinois. The next, the very, well, it was two months later, my dad died. It's about three months after that that my mom died. And in a matter of just a few months, man, these things are just boom, boom, boom. Be quite honest with you. I had some of the lowest days I've ever had in my whole life. But you know what I found in my life then and now and before then? If you're ever having a bad day, don't sit around and feel sorry for yourself. Get up and do something for somebody else. And you'll walk away from an encounter. Think about somebody. You know, it's amazing how many needs are out there once you open your eyes. And you start looking around. And you start seeing needs. You could visit somebody. You could reach out to somebody. You could help somebody. Have you ever had an experience like this? You were so down. And you're like, what do I do about it? Do I just sit here and just throw a misery party for myself? A pity party? Pull out the, the hat and the whistles and just have a pity party? Listen, that's not going to make you feel any better. It will only make you feel more miserable. But you get up and you go out and you do something for somebody else and you walk away from doing something for somebody else and you're saying, you know what, it's amazing. I went, I went thinking that I was going to help them and maybe I did and I hope I did. But in trying to help them, God helped me while I was helping them. And you're blessed because you're doing it Jesus' way. Life is not all about you and life is not all about me. It's looking for needs and saying, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to love? How do you want me to serve? Would you stand with me for a closing prayer? Thank you so much, God. Lord, I know that there are a lot of people here today that, that they want to be what you want them to be. They want to love. And they want to serve. Lord, I know that the prevailing attitude in our day is not that much different than it was in Philippi, ancient Rome, many years ago. I've got to serve myself. I've got to promote myself. I've got to advance myself. Help us instead to take the path of Jesus, which is the authentic path to joy, that I humble myself and I just become 
a servant. God, thank you that the happiest people, the secret that happy people know is not in trying to serve me, it's in trying to serve others. And help us to start doing that this week, God, and help us to never stop. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. I love you, everybody. Have an awesome week. See you next Sunday.